Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will already know at this point, we release podcasts in three different formats. There's our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. There's our 10 minute lesson series where we aim to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on key points that people really need to know. And there's our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. But this week, it's one of those. In this episode, we can listen back to the launch webinar of our annual socio-economic review, Social Justice Matters 2022, a guide to a fair Irish society. In this, we present a detailed analysis of a range of key matters which are central to social justice, a vision of Ireland's future as a just and sustainable society, and a well-being policy framework to move consistently and coherently towards becoming a just society. We also set out detailed policy proposals needed to move in this direction. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. On behalf of Social Justice Ireland, I'd like to welcome you all to the launch of Social Justice Matters 2022 Guide to a Fairer Irish Society. We're delighted that so many of you were able to join us this morning to launch the publication. So my name is Michelle Murphy. I'm research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. So I will be your uh, host this morning and my colleagues, Dr. Sean Healy, director, Colette Bennett, economic and social analyst, and Suzanne Rogers, research and policy analyst. We will all present this morning to you. So we're going to run through the main policy areas in the publication itself. Now we're not going to go into everything in complete detail, but we'll go through the, the key issues for each policy area and look at some potential policy solutions. And afterwards, there'll be a question and answer session. So please use the Q&A function to ask any questions that you may have throughout the presentation. So the Q&A function is there at the middle of your screen. So please use that to ask any questions that you may have so that we We'll see them throughout the presentation and then we'll answer them at the end once we have all finished and hopefully um, it'll be thought provoking. You'll have lots of questions and we'll be able to provide answers to you. Now, so to start the presentation, for those of you who don't know who we are, who is Social Justice Ireland? Well, we are an independent social justice think tank. Our goal and our job and the work that we do is to develop and deliver independent and credible social analysis and using this analysis we identify sustainable options for the future that would improve the well-being for everybody in society but particularly those who are most vulnerable and once we've done that we look at what are the potential policy pathways to move you towards that future and what are the steps that we can take in order to get to that future. So not only do we look at you know, what, what the best outcome for people will be, but also we look at how you might get there and what is the best means towards getting there. Another part of our role is to influence the public debate to ensure that it focuses on what matters most to people who are, are poor, who are vulnerable, or who are in need, often who are missing from the conversation. I think that's particularly important at the moment in light of the, the discussions and the debate around the cost of living that, that we remember in the public debate, who the increased cost of living is impacting the most and why we should be targeting resources on that cohort of people. Uh, we work to improve public policy in order to improve society, the lives of people and the well-being of everybody. And our work is underpinned by human rights and the common good. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, you'll find a lot more of our work and information on socialjustice.ie. 
Now, moving on to the publication that we are launching this morning, what is Social Justice Matters? Social Justice Matters 2022 Guide to a Fairer Irish Society is our annual socioeconomic review. And in this publication, we look at the key long-term challenges facing government and facing the country, looking at the facts, the trends in different policy areas and potential policy solutions. We cover 10 key policy areas ranging from housing to income distribution to rural development to overseas development assistance. We provide independent analysis in each policy area and detailed policy proposals. It's a key annual reference point on social justice and social policy issues. And it is available on our website, socialjustice.ie. And we hope it will be of use to you all in, in your work, in your policy work, and in informing you in terms of you know, what the potential policy options are there to government when we're looking at improving the well-being of everybody in society. So that's it for me for the moment for my introduction. And now I'm going to hand over to Dr. Sean Healy, our director, to begin the presentation of Social Justice Matters 2022. Good morning, everybody. Um, and I suppose the, the context is the first thing we want to uh, spell out. And we just titled it, titled it there a moment of reckoning this year. Uh, I suppose when we look back and we go back as far as the, we say the, the crash, the bank crash and uh, the subsequent bailout and all of the difficulties that were there, uh, not just for Ireland, but for the European Union and globally as well. Uh, we, we find a situation in which there was a huge crisis. There was a, an enormous amount of effort done, not a lot of austerity imposed. Unfairly, we argued at the time, and we feel vindicated about that now, but that's another day's work. But in the decade uh, following that crisis, more often than not, policy measures were aimed at restoring the status quo reconstructing the economic system as it existed pre-crisis. That was the focus. And in a phrase too frequently used at that time and throughout those years, we were uh, the policy was focused on returning to business as usual. But the, the reality, I suppose, now is that the COVID-19 pandemic and the climate crisis and now uh, the, the geoeconomic crisis caused by the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, these all reveal uh, as well as uh, uh, the fossil fuel-based economic system that we have uh, and that we are so constrained by, that this basically um, shows an effect that Irish society, and not just Irish society, continues to face great social and economic upheaval. And there's a dawning and widespread recognition at this stage that business as usual isn't enough, that our econ economy and our society, both here in Ireland and more broadly, must change to become more equal, to become more just and uh, more sustainable. That's not going to happen if we stay with doing the things we've always been doing. So if we're to meet the needs of the people and the challenges of the future, we need to fundamentally change. And we will need to create new uh, and repurpose old institutions to manage and implement this transition. And part of what we're presenting in this, it will be a spelling out of some of those kinds of issues. So Social Justice Matters basically this year outlines a framework to address Ireland's challenges in an integrated and sustainable manner. So moving, moving on, uh, we would basically start by suggesting to government that it's time uh, for the government to actually um, 
start to, de to deliver on the programme for government commitments. Like there is a recognition that it's a time for change and that there, in that programme for government, there is a commitment uh, to have a well-being framework for a new social contract. And both of those issues are named there. And we think it's time for progress to be made in that uh, whole context. Um, and to, if we're going to have a, a new social contract and a well-being framework, we argue in Social Justice Ireland that government policy must be focused on delivering five outcomes, but delivering them simultaneous, simultaneously. Um, we would argue that we need to deliver a vibrant economy. We need to deliver decent infrastructure and services. We need just taxation. We need good governance and we need sustainability. However, we are very strongly of the view that it's not an issue about getting the economy right and everything else follows. We've been doing using that as an approach for quite a while. And it's, it's clear, not just from Irish evidence, but from evidence across the world, that that type of approach simply doesn't work. You cannot do, have a, a vibrant economy with, without decent infrastructure, without good services. You can't fund it without just taxation, you, yeah, and you can't maintain it without good governance and the involvement of everybody, and it won't be sustainable in the long run. And this approach is not simply doable. We would argue very strongly that it's desirable, that it's effective, and it's efficient. And we would also argue that this is the time to move, that it's a time uh, for transition. This is the time to transition. And first of all, then, we need to forge this new social contract we're talking about to replace the outdated neoliberal consensus of the 1980s um, and that, that has dominated and grown and grown uh, in its emphasis and its, uh, its uh, sort of all over the place, being uh, existing all over the place, right across the, the planet. Uh, that particular neoliberal consensus has le led to very deep, divided two-tier societies across the, the world and led also to huge div divisions between people uh, who are in, in, in between countries and within countries. Uh, but it's not just about forging a new social contract. We also need effective governance mechanisms uh, to forge a consensus on the detailed steps ahead. Uh, you, it's, if, you're, if we're going to get consensus, and consensus is essential if we're to move forward with a new social contract and shape the future in, a, in an acceptable way, then we need effective government mechanisms to involve various strands of society. And finally, we'll need to find the means to finance the transition. We can't we, uh, just assume that the financing is going to be there. It won't be there. Uh, the kinds of things we're talking about do cost money. Uh, and therefore, we need an approach uh, that does give proper uh, positioning, if you like, and uh, levels of importance to the need to find ways to finance the transition, recognizing that any short term cost will be far outweighed by the consequences of failure if we don't uh, actually face up to, to the transition that is, that is required. So uh, finally, for me, uh, before passing on, I want to just highlight the, 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 the importance of social dialogue in all this. It is a time for social dialogue. Um, and in Ireland at the moment, we have a very emasculated, too narrow view, our approach, our structure that government is using uh, to uh, have social dialogue. Um, 
the, the social dialogue should involve all stakeholders. And when we're talking about all stakeholders in, in, in uh, Ireland, of course, we're talking about trade unions and employers, but we're also talking about the community and voluntary sector, about farmers and about the environmental sector. And these all have pillars of social partnership, as they're called. And we need to involve them all. A model of social dialogue is required, focused on that kind of broad-based enhancement of capabilities in the economy and in society. We need to uh, recognize that if we're going to solve problems, that we need to get uh, approaches and solutions that are mutually acceptable. And if we're going to get mutually acceptable solutions, we have to involve people in shaping those uh, solutions. It's not good enough, for example, as the government is doing right now, to go off and uh, sort of allocate a huge amount of the resources that are going to be available to solving one part of that, which is a pay rise, which is required and needs to be negotiated properly, of course. But not just that, there, it isn't good enough to do that. And then whatever is left over is there for all the rest of the infrastructure and the services and the welfare and so on. Uh, what that does in effect is it excludes certain groups, usually the most vulnerable from the decision-making process. And they wind up just depending on the crumbs that fall from the table. Uh, that's not an acceptable way to go. We need um, a, a methodology that uh, involves all the sectors and they are mutually uh, developing mutually acceptable solutions to the problems we obviously have. And that would ensure support for such solutions when implemented, because once we get consensus about these are the kinds of priorities, these are this is where we should prioritize, these are the areas we should uh, resource, and these, these are the kinds of divisions we should make with the resources that we have available, recognizing that they're limited and not, not infinite, then with that consensus, we can assure that support will be there for the solutions when government implements them. It all, one final point in this is that there's also a need to increase the transparency of the budgetary and other important decisions, the processes made there. Because in Ireland, there's a recognition that current, the current level of engagement of policymakers and, of the, wider republic, and the wider public is far too low in the decision making, because in the budget each year, government decides how to spend its money. And it is very important that that process be transparent and that we have very clear uh, recognition and understanding of what, what happens and where it, where it happens. And consequently, uh, we would argue very strongly that uh, they, the, the greater transparency of the budgetary process and other important decision making uh, should be high in that uh, social, uh, social dialogue our social contract view of improved governance. With that increase in better transparency, we get better decisions in the budget and in other decision-making processes that we have. So we would strongly recommend uh, a more transparent budgetary and other uh, process, and also having a more transparent process on other decisions being made as well. So I hand over uh, to Colette. Thank you very, very much, Sean. Um, so I'm just going to look, I suppose, again, within the context piece at the, the key long term challenges that continue to face government. Um, so we know and we consistently have a market driven housing system. Um, we have high levels of inequality. And for those who experience 
inequality, those certainly at the, at the bottom end of the rung, um, they experience things quite differently. And as um, Michelle alluded to earlier on, you know, certainly in the midst of a cost of living crisis, we see that those who are most vulnerable to it are suffering the most. Um, we have demographic change. We have a, an increasing aging population, which is, is good news. You know, it is good news that we have um, people getting older. However, we haven't sufficiently planned for that aging in terms of our resources and in terms of the supports that will be required into the future. Um, we have an unemployment issue. Now, again, post-pandemic, we have seen a recovery in our employment data. However, we still see a higher level of, of underemployment um, and of low paid and precarious employment. We continue to have, notwithstanding the, the advances that were made during COVID, a two-tiered healthcare system. So again, not depending on the needs of the individual, but actually on the individual's capacity to pay. And that is no way to provide healthcare. Um, we are still engaged in the, the long suffering with climate change. We have made very, very little move in terms of what is needed to meet our targets. We've missed our 2020 targets. Uh, we're on track to miss our 2030 targets. And Michelle will talk more about that later on. Uh, we need to make real moves towards a just transition. And again, to bring people who will experience that um, in the most negative of ways along with us and to make sure that they are cushioned in terms of the transitions that they need to make. So again, for those who are on um, low incomes, for those who are reliant on fossil fuels and for those who are in rural areas, we need to make sure that this just transition is being done in the most equitable way possible. And we need to stop the decline in rural communities and make sure that we are developing rural areas um, again in as equitable way as possible. So how do we go about doing that? I mean, as Sean already talked about, Ireland's social contract is essentially broken and we need to, to focus on the well-being of all. There's no doubt that a new social contract is needed to do this um, because the legitimate expectations of citizens aren't actually being met. Now, this is most obvious in areas such as housing and homelessness, in our two-tiered healthcare system, as I mentioned, and in an ongoing failure to provide uh, rural broadband, although that has been slightly improved, um, and in high levels of poverty and social inclusion, especially, sorry, social exclusion, especially among children. Um, now is the perfect opportunity to develop a new and radical social contract within the context of a well-being framework. Um, and we have, you know, proposals in this that you can see in the table there. Uh, so again, as Sean said, it focuses on delivering five key outcomes, a vibrant economy which works for the benefit of society, decent services and infrastructure which are accessible to all as they need it, a fair taxation system to support our social infrastructure and our economic infrastructure, good governance, which facilitates everyone having a say in decisions that affect them. And again, Sean uh, mentioned the, the social dialogue issue and sustainability. And that means that development is balanced across the regions and that progress is measured in terms of social cohesion and the common good. So it is obviously about environmental change, it's about climate change, but it's also about more than that. It's about making sure that the policy decisions that are made are also sustainable. Moving on to building a, a well-being framework and what that might actually do. Well, 
COVID-19 has caused us to think about many things that previously we may never have considered. So the importance of, of really good public services, the need for a social security system that provides real security in the face of, of sickness and unemployment, and about concepts such as interdependence and, and solidarity. It's led us to reassess what we mean by essential work and essential workers, who really are essential workers. And is it right that many of them are treated the way that they are? And it's fundamentally changed the relationship between business and the state. We have an opportunity now to develop and agree on a, a new social contract and how it should be delivered. And Social Justice Ireland believes that at the heart of that contract is a commitment that benefits derived from things like technological development, economic growth and societal advancement are shared by all. A real republic will stand for social justice and equality. And as part of a new social contract, government should ensure that future tax and spending policy is focused on building up Ireland's social infrastructure, prioritising areas such as healthcare, social housing, education, childcare and early education facilities. These are areas in particular where Ireland is experiencing an infrastructure deficit and we're set to, to experience a worsening of that deficit as things go, go on. And without adequate future planning for the kinds of social infrastructure and services that we actually need, it won't be possible to maintain, never mind improve, the current standards of living for all citizens and people coming into this country. Social Justice Ireland therefore calls on leadership from all sectors of Irish society to become part of that debate on a new social contract for a new century. So then we need to obviously pay for it. We need to invest in this kind of well-being framework that we want. And while it's, it's you know, eminently deliverable, it will obviously cost money. Um, it requires the adoption of counter-cyclical fiscal policies. And we saw that in recent budgets where government made the decision to invest in things like healthcare, to invest in things like social welfare for the good of all. While recovery is still underway for some, um, we see that it is unfolding in different ways for different groups. So again, we've seen an increase in billionaires, an increase in millionaires, while we have people struggling with a cost of living crisis. Policy must be better focused then on addressing and minimizing these divisions. And that will take a kind of a war effort. Um, so, you know, when we think of the consequences of the current invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, what we're seeing is already a, a steady stream of refugees uh, arriving in Ireland. And there's currently 20,000 plus with a view to, to being 100,000 or so. Uh, government has taken the very correct decision in welcoming them into the country and working to provide the services and the accommodation and the supports that they need. But there are now five key challenges that have to be addressed. So most of the current response is understandably short term. However, long term implications also need to be addressed immediately as a matter of, of urgency, because many of the, the refugees that are coming to Ireland won't be in a position to return to Ukraine for years while the infrastructure and the housing is still being built. Most of the needs of Ukrainians are, are very similar to those that Irish society are continuing to struggle with. So housing, healthcare, education, public transport, childcare, welfare, all of these things need to be addressed. The implications of the gendered nature of this migration also needs to be considered. So most of the migrants that are, are here at the moment are women and children. So that means that childcare is 
absolutely essential to enable adults who can take up employment if they wish to. The fact that Ireland already had refugees and an asylum seeker um, system and the direct provision system also needs to be addressed. All refugees should have the same access to the same rights, the same services and the same supports. And finally, how all of this is to be financed is a question that requires an urgent answer. The first four challenges that I mentioned uh, can be addressed within that framework of a social contract and a social dialogue, as we've already discussed. Um, but the, you know, in terms of the fifth challenge, we believe that significant additional government spending is required, financed in the short term by the issuance of debt rather than additional taxation. Um, but that we need to do this now if the, the, the challenges in the period ahead are to be addressed. We know that this borrowing is currently affordable and it is the correct thing to do for the future if Ireland is going to address the Ukrainian migration challenge, as well as all of the other challenges in a coherent and an adequate manner. We should engage with the EU Commission to ensure that they are willing to show further flexibility and suspend the fiscal rules and ensure that they're willing to support this correct response to the Ukrainian migration. This doesn't mean that we, we borrow over the long term to avoid broadening our tax base, and I'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later on. We need to do both, uh, but not simply to reduce the deficit or, or the debt. We need to see the present situation as a, an opportunity to refocus on preparing Ireland for a post-carbon post-Ukrainian migration world and to stop us lurching from one crisis to another. We need to begin planning now for the additional measures that are, are needed, for the additional tax take that's needed over the long term to finance universal services and income supports for all people in Ireland. And with that, I'm going to move to my colleague Suzanne Rogers. Thank you. As Michelle highlighted at the outset, there is an enormous amount of information in each of these chapters, so I'll just be picking out one or two small bits. I think it's really important that we, in Ireland, we acknowledge that we have an ongoing poverty problem. We have high rates of poverty and income inequality, and these have been the norm in Irish society for quite some time. We're talking about a cost of living crisis, which for many households has been in place for years, if not longer. And these are problems that require greater attention than they currently receive. But tackling these problems effectively is a multifaceted task. It requires action on many fronts. However, the most important requirement in tackling poverty is the provision of sufficient income to enable people to live a life with dignity, whatever that is for that individual. And no anti-poverty strategy can possibly be successful without an effective approach to addressing that issue of low income. And at the moment, especially given that lower income households spend a much greater proportion of their income compared to better off households, on the basics, they're much more exposed to these price increases. They spend a greater proportion of their income on food and energy. So yes, whilst all households are experiencing significant price increases, it's the effect of this rising inflation that impacts the living standards of those on the lowest incomes the hardest. They have no there's no room for there's no room for budgeting. There's no wiggle room. There's nowhere to go. You're having to make really, really difficult decisions about what you spend your money on. And a lesson we've had from previous experiences that the weakest in our society get left behind unless welfare increases keep track with increases elsewhere in the economy. 
core social welfare rates were not increased in either budget 2020 or budget 2021, and the increase in budget 2022 was less than what was required. Those on fixed incomes, and as well as that it was in low paid employment, which I don't even really get into in this, um, but obviously that is an issue as well, who have been most impacted by these rising costs will continue to struggle. The real value of social welfare payments will continue to fall. So benchmarking the minimum rate of social welfare payments to movement in average earnings is therefore a really, really important policy priority. Almost 15 years ago, Budget 2007 benchmarked minimum social welfare rate at 30% of gross average industrial earnings. Now that data set no longer exists. What we have is an average weekly earnings from the CSO. And when we compare the two, um, somebody's done all these numbers in the background. What that equates to at the moment is 27.5% of average earnings. And again, if we look at how that transfers at this particular moment, for us to match that rate of 2007, we should have a social welfare payment at €234.65 compared to 208. It's a considerable shortfall. So really what's needed is an increase of €30, Euro, €27 Euro to bring it up, but we're looking for €30 Euro over the next two budgets. Well, ideally, we would be putting it into place sooner than that, but that would be an ask of ours. Um, I suppose, again, if you look at maybe who's in poverty, the, U, the European Commission and United Nations, amongst other, will use a poverty line of 60% of median income. And if we apply that here to this country, what we're looking at is 13, almost 13 people out of every 100 people in Ireland are living in poverty. Just one or two more things before I pass over to back to Colette. We also need to introduce the cost of disability allowance, and this is vital to address the poverty and social include, sorry, social exclusion. I got caught there as well, Colette. Social exclusion of people living with disabilities. And again, as the pub has shown us, as the conversations we've had over the last couple of years, as the artist basic income has shown us, we really do need to be moving towards a comprehensive, a universal basic income system. And I think a key point of the universal basic income system is that it would also address the issue of individualizing payments so that each recipient receives their own social welfare payment, which again has been on the policy agenda here in Ireland and across the EU for several years. So that's me doing, I think, um, with that, I'm going to pass back to Colette. Thank you. Thank you very much, Suzanne, for that. Uh, so I'm going to move to the always interesting area of taxation. Um, and our core policy objective here is to collect sufficient taxes to ensure full participation in society for all through a fair tax system in which those who have more pay more, while those who have less pay less. Uh, government decisions to raise or reduce overall taxation revenue needs to be linked to the demands on its resources. And, and those demands depend very much on what government is required to address or decides itself to pursue. Um, the unpredictable nature of the pandemic, the Ukrainian crisis, as I described earlier, and the, the challenge recovery, recovering from both of those suggests that the national debt may well climb further in the immediate years ahead. Despite favourable lending rates and payback terms, there remains a recurring cost to servicing that debt, costs which have to be financed by current taxation revenues. And the estimated debt servicing cost for 2022, according to the Department of Finance, is £3.4 So these new future taxation needs are in, in addition to those that already exist for funding local government, 
for repairing and modernizing our water infrastructure, paying for our health and our pension needs for an aging population, paying EU contributions and funding any pollution reducing environmental initiatives that are required by European and international agreements. Collectively, they mean that Ireland's overall level of taxation will have to rise significantly in the years ahead. And a reality that Irish society and the political system needs to begin to really seriously address and, and one which we stress um, in our 2022 submission to the, the current Commission on Taxation and Welfare. We've proposed a new tax take target uh, that's set on a per capita basis um, that Ireland's overall level of taxation should reach a level equivalent to €15,000 per capita in 2017 terms, and that the target should increase each year in line with growth in nominal GNI star. Now, one argument that's made against those kind of increases is that you know, this would mean that our, um, our competitiveness has been undermined. However, the suggestion that higher levels of taxation would damage that position in relation to other countries just isn't supported by international studies of competitiveness. And there is an annex to this publication that is available on our website uh, where we compare taxation levels in Ireland to those in other leading competitive economies. And we find that almost all collect a greater proportion of national income in taxation than we do. It's clear that we need to increase our tax take and, and make the taxation system fairer. A number of ways in which we could do that would be to make the two main tax credits refundable uh, so that those on very low incomes can recoup the unused portion of their credits as a move towards reducing poverty among the working poor. We need to poverty proof our budgetary tax changes to ensure that their distributive, their distributive impact is benefiting those who really need it the most. We need to shift taxation policy towards our environmental goals so that we're encouraging behaviours that benefit the environment and we're disincentivizing those that don't. We need to introduce a minimum effective corporation tax rate of 6% with a view to moving towards 10%. And usually we get back, but our tax rate is 12.5% and we're, we're moving towards the OECD BEPS rate of 15%. And those two things are true. However, when we look at the effective rate of corporation tax, we see that not alone are very high tax corporations um, or high profitable corporations paying very low rates of effective rates of tax, there are some that are paying zero and less than zero, meaning that that refundable tax credit that we don't introduce for low paid workers are being introduced on the corporate side to improve and enhance corporate profits. And we need to reform the area of tax expenditures, which currently aren't included in the budget process, they're not subject to any scrutiny, and they few, if any, sunset clauses, mean, meaning that they go on indefinitely while they disproportionately benefit the better off. So there are a number of ways in which we could obviously improve our taxation system by taking on the recommendations in these areas. Moving on then to the world of work, and our core policy objective here is to ensure that all people have access to meaningful work. Um, so while we've seen a really strong improvement since lockdown, in fact, you know, we, we rebounded quite quickly compared to the 2008 crash um, post pandemic, we still have one third of unemployed people who are long term unemployed. And in fact, we've seen an increase, a slight increase in long term unemployed since the, the pandemic 
just over one in five workers are part-time and about a quarter of those, 110,000 of those are underemployed, meaning that they are working part-time, but they wish to work more hours and they're available to do so. What we need to do is to resource the upskilling of those who are unemployed and at risk of becoming unemployed through integrating training and labour market programmes. And while there have been moves um, in this regard over recent strategies, not enough is being done to make sure that there is that life cycle approach to make sure that all age groups are included within that kind of lifelong learning and retraining and upskilling strategy. We need to launch a major investment programme focused on prioritising initiatives that strengthen social infrastructure, including comprehensive school building programmes and a much larger larger social housing programme. And I'll get into that in a couple of minutes. Um, We need to adopt policies to address the worrying issue of youth unemployment. And again, we saw how precarious youth employment was um, in the wake of the pandemic. So in particular, We need to include education and literacy initiatives as well as retraining schemes. And we need to focus those schemes on new technologies, on new ways of working so that our youth are at the cutting edge of the new workforce. We need to recognize that the challenges of of long-term unemployment persist as well as those of precarious employment and adopt targeted policies to, to address all of those things. And we need to to recognize finally that the term work is not synonymous with the concept of paid employment. Everybody has a right to work and that work could be contributing to your own development or development of your community or your wider society. It shouldn't be confined to job creation and productivity that, that links in with GDP. Work and a job are not the same thing and they need to be taken as that and and government policy needs to to really recognise that and recognise the the benefit of community work. And then we need to go to housing. Uh, So, you know, again, our, our core policy objective here is to ensure that adequate and appropriate accommodation is available for all people and to develop an equitable system for allocating resources within the housing sector. So again, we've seen over the last number of years a population expansion, and that is temporarily uh, accelerated by the Ukrainian crisis and the the increase in refugees coming to to Ireland who will need suitable accommodation into the medium and and possibly longer term. Um, There's a lack of suitable housing for people with disabilities and, and older people who have additional needs um, because we don't have that kind of life cycle approach to housing developments. We have a very high level of vacancy and dereliction. There's anywhere between 90 and 183,000 vacant homes, depending on if you look at the geo directory or the, the latest CSO, the 2016 census data. Now, hopefully we'll have um, better data to go on once the 2022 census is available. And there is roughly 20,000 derelict properties. Um, you know, these are contributing to the housing crisis and these could really contribute to the recovery. We have a high level of homeless. We're, we're knocking around that kind of 10,000 mark now for the last number of years. And even within that, we know that not all homeless people are counted. So it doesn't count, for example, people living in direct provision. It doesn't count uh, families who are accessing domestic violence refuges. 
It doesn't count uh, those in overcrowded accommodations. It doesn't count those who are couch surfing and staying with family and friends. So we need a a better methodology for actually counting um, who our homeless are if we have any any sort of um, ability to actually do anything about it. We need to know what is there. We know that house purchase and rent is unaffordable for very, very many people um, and that there is a very high rate of poverty, particularly in the the private rented sector. Um, There has been a a lack of investment in social housing, certainly since the crash of 2008, and we still haven't really recovered in terms of our capital infrastructure budgets. Um, And there's also a lack of sustainable, adequate traveller accommodation. So again, how do we how do we deal with that? What are the kind of things that we need to look at? Well, we need to encourage the right type of supply. So you'll hear the narrative of all supply is good supply and just increase it. And that's just not true. Um, while it's an instinctive response to the housing crisis, all supply isn't made equal. Um, changes to building regulations, which allowed for lower standards in buy to rent properties, Um, to make them more viable for investors has led to substandard accommodation that isn't really intended for long-term housing. Housing for All commits to increasing the housing stock by 33,000 units per year to reach a total increase of 156,000 over the life of the strategy. Now, even if that were sufficient, and we don't believe that it is, um, development must be affordable and sustainable and seek to provide long-term homes rather than just short-term investment opportunities. We need to build more social housing. Our social housing supply is approximately 9% of our housing stock. But according to Housing Europe's research, this is very much at odds with many of our European counterparts. So we've been proposing that governments set a target of 20% of all housing stock to be social housing by 2030. Now, that would equate to an additional 232,800 social housing units to be delivered in the next eight years. Housing for All commits to just 90,000 of those and lacks lacks any clarity on how almost half of those will actually be delivered within the lifetime of the plan. The current need, based only on the social housing waiting lists and households on subsidies, is 157,000 households. And the Parliamentary Budget Office uh, released some research a while ago that suggested that equated to about 260,000 people. Um, Again, this doesn't account for households leaving direct provision, new households fleeing wars, households and refuges for domestic abuse, the majority of homeless as currently counted, or all of the homeless not currently counted within official data. And we desperately need to increase affordability. And there are a number of ways that we can do that on the supply side, rather than just looking at demand side initiatives, such as the affordable home loan scheme or the help to buy scheme, which artificially inflate incomes for first time buyers, rather than actually making homes actually affordable. We need to open up procurement so that developers could come together and and bid for materials in bulk, and that could be supported through the LDA. We need to investigate the use of delivery labs, such as those that are used in in the United States and Saudi Arabia, that bring together a range of stakeholders um, to, to look at what is actually needed within communities. We need to demand full transparency from developers um, in relation to their costs. We need to invest in new methodologies and new ways of working and to bring in, you know, our our, um, apprenticeship targets around construction within this context. We need to reconsider density so that, you know, it's it's not necessarily up 
but out. So it is possible to have high density, low to medium rise uh, building developments. And we need to waive some or all construction levies for developers, conditional that that full waiver would apply to the reduction of house prices. Um, and then finally, we need to provide for the use of compulsory sale orders to bring that 90 to 180,000 vacant properties back into the market. And with that, I'm going to pass you back to Michelle. Thank you. Thanks, Colette. And so now I'm going to move on to looking at uh, chapter seven of the publication, which, which looks at healthcare. Now, this is our core policy objective here is to provide an adequate healthcare service focused on enabling people to attain um, the WHO's definition of health. So a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being. So not just the absence of disease, but it's a holistic approach to health. Now, I'm not going to go through every issue in our, our healthcare system because we know there are many, but I, I just want to focus on a couple of the key issues here. So the first one is ageing. So our population is growing and it's ageing. We're getting older. That is a success story that is to be welcomed, increased longevity is a great success for the country and our population is growing and aging across all regions. But obviously, if you've an aging and growing population, you need to plan for this because significant increases, particularly in the people in the category over 85, that means increased need. So people living longer with either a long-term illness or an acquired disability. So you need to plan for that and looking at the most appropriate model of healthcare that we have to support those people. And we do know that there is going to be increased demand for home care, long-term care, intermediate care across all sectors um, between now and 2030. So we need to plan for this. Another issue that's, you know, been long discussed in our country is the issue of waiting times. And Ireland remains the only Western European country without universal coverage for primary care. And it's ranked 22nd out of 35 countries in the issue of sec in a 2018 um, survey on health systems, but in terms of accessibility, we ranked the worst. So this is a huge problem that we still haven't managed to grapple to. And we have a two-tier access to public health. So private patients and you know, your access to resources can determine your access to diagnostics and treatments. Whereas if you're in the public system, you have a much longer waiting period in terms of access to appointments. And actually, if we look at figures from November, 2021, there was six, over almost 640,000 people were waiting for an outpatient appointment and you sent over 75,000 people waiting for an inpatient appointment. And although these numbers were particularly high in that period and COVID, the impact of the pandemic may have exacerbated this issue, it's not the cause. These numbers have been very high for a large number of years. Finally, then, in terms of accessing our system, it depends on whether you've access to a medical card private health insurance will determine your access to health services and generally it's those who are the poorest and the sickest and people with disabilities who have to wait the longest for care and any barriers in terms of costs are the most difficult for that cohort. So there's a high degree of income inequality in our system, particularly when you look at something like prescribed medicines. The unmet need for prescribed medicines in Ireland is actually twice as high as the EU average. And it's more than twice as high among people with the lowest level of education than those with the highest level of education. So, again, we have an income inequality in terms of unmet need. So how, how do we address this inequality? First, we have to ensure that we have additional resources committed to development. Those that were committed in 2021, they're retained within the system, but used to implement Slauncha Care. 
So that means implementing a model of care that affords primary care priority over acute care and recognises the need for adequate resources across the full continuum of care. So social care, primary care and specialist services. But crucially, we must complete the rollout of community health networks across the country. We need to look at home care, particularly in terms of ageing. And we need to create a statutory entitlement to home care services. And we have welcomed initiatives taken in this direction in recent years. But the publication of details and implementation are regrettably delayed. A statutory entitlement to home care will require increased funding, but it will save us money in the long term because it allows people to remain living in their own home. But this requires supporting them. It requires an integrated approach to a range of services in the home, as well as transitioning facilities. So step down care, step up care, convalescence, assessment and review, respite services. So we need an integrated package of care. And then finally, we need to institute long term planning investment in the sector. So looking not only at the demographic changes, but the increased diversity within, within the population, how we cope with this, what demand is going to place on the system and what services and investment are required, not only today, but into the future. Now, moving on to another key uh, public policy area and key service we provide, I suppose, at the other end of the spectrum is the issue of education. And our core policy objective here is to provide um, access to a level of uh, education and services required as acceptable for Irish society and to look at particularly how we ensure that everyone has access to a level of education across the life cycle. So in terms of some of the key challenges we face here, and I won't go through all of them, but one of the key challenges we continue to face is despite progress, and we have to welcome the progress that has been made, the achievement of pupils in schools with concentrations of people from disadvantaged backgrounds is still well below that of other schools. And that goes from primary level right through to second level and beyond. We see it not only in the educational surveys, such as the TIMS and the PISA, but also looking, we can see it coming out through the Growing Up in Ireland survey, where you can see the differences uh, in reading test scores by socioeconomic background in children once they reach nine years of age. So addressing educational disadvantage remains a key policy priority. I suppose linked to this is in terms of our investment, in terms of the ECCE, we have the second lowest expenditure on early childhood care and education in the OECD. Uh, and this is something... And this is one of the key areas where you can address educational disadvantage at a, at a very early stage. So we need to be looking at increasing investment in this area. And finally, we need to look at our, our performance both on lifelong learning. Um, it's 13% at the moment. We've a target 15% by 2020, which we haven't achieved. Also our performance on digital skills because access to ongoing skills development, improving your skills is going to be crucial, not only to our national ambition, but supporting people as we meet the, the digital and green transitions. So what are the policy solutions available to us? For, so number one, we and we've consistently advocated this, making the improvement of educational outcomes for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds and communities a key policy priority. And we welcome the recent expansion of the DESH programme to incorporate an additional 310 schools. It's very welcome, but we need to, to build on this progress, to close the attainment gap, and particularly to, to expand the COVID learning and support scheme announced by the Minister last year to ensure that that scheme is ongoing because the impact of 
educate the the interrupted learning on on students and pupils through all levels of education system that's going to be have a long-term impact so we're we're, we need a long-term response to this we need to focus on literacy numeracy trends focusing on students in these schools and on those backgrounds and how we support them throughout the education system and into lifelong learning and adult skills we need to commit to in increasing investment in ECCE by 1% of GDP to reach 0.1% of GDP to reach 1% of GDP by 2027. And then look at how we use the resources that we have. Look at, um, you know, intake. We have projections on the intake, intake out to 2046 and beyond. So what do those mean that for resources that are already within the system and how we can, can we use the teaching numbers that we have within the system, how can we reallocate those resources to reduce class sizes, to reduce pupil-teacher ratios and to improve outcomes for everybody. And finally then, looking at skills, fully resource adult literacy for life. We really welcome the publication of that, that strategy, but we need to fully resource it and we need to resource lifelong learning and skills to ensure that we can meet the di- twin transitions of both digitization, but also climate change and the green transition. And I'm going to pass over to my colleague, Suzanne, now. Thanks, Michelle. This is chapter 10, and the focus of chapter 10 is on people. And by people, I suppose what we're, we're trying to do is recognise that all people from different cultures have to be welcomed in a way that's consistent with our own history as world citizens and with our own economic status and then avenues to participation for people. So very conscious that movement of people across borders is a headline topic at the moment because of the war in Ukraine, which has resulted in millions of people leaving behind their homes, their families, their jobs, everything that's familiar, everything that they cannot put in a suitcase in order to seek safe haven. So for many migrants, though, immigration is not temporary. They will remain in Ireland and they make it their home. Ireland is now multiracial, multicultural, and government policies should promote and encourage the development of this inclusive and integrated society with respect for and recognition of diverse cultures. And to further that integration, we really do need to make the investment to assimilate skills obtained whilst abroad. As Colette said earlier on, we have issued PPSNs, we have issued work permits. Um, We also need, I suppose, then to make sure that people's degrees and education and any skills obtained abroad as well are recognised here so that people can begin to go to work. According to the latest figures, um, middle of last year, net migration into Ireland was positive. With 2021, however, showing the smallest increase in population growth since 2014. So the COVID-19 health and travel restrictions were likely to be a main factor. There was a lot of restrictions on movements. There was a contraction of available employment. And that then was coupled with the lowest levels of natural increase, which is births minus deaths recorded since 2000. So in terms of nationality then, just over 16% of total immigrants into Ireland in 2021 had a nationality from within the EU. Another 4.3% were UK and 14.1% had a nationality from within the rest of the world. And then I suppose disturbingly then, considering that we are a society that prides itself on its welcome, on its Cade Mila Fulgia, there were 404 reports of racist incidents in 2021. Assault rates remained high, 
More than half of these resulted in injuries and nearly two thirds resulted in significant psychological impact. And again, disturbingly, only 25% of these crimes were reported to Gardaí in 2021, which is down 43% from 2020. Whilst there were fewer incidents of serious threat than in previous years, there was a much higher rate of public order offences, which involved aggressive and abusive and usually racist language. Again, we therefore must fully implement the recommendations of the Commission for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And again, in 2021, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission published the first council by council equality review on traveller accommodation. The main issues that emerged here from the review were consistent underspends of local authority accommodation funds. We do acknowledge that 2020 did see the full allocation being spent as a reaction to COVID-19 health measures. There's a lack of real data to inform decision making and there's actually no discussion of travellers' actual accommodation preferences. It's such a priority to ensure safe, secure, appropriate housing for all communities. So we are calling for the reinstatement of funding for traveller specific initiatives and again to implement the recommendations of the Shared Public Consultation Committee published in January 2020. So finally then on to participation. This is key and I suppose it echoes some of the things that Sean said at the beginning about transparency, about consensus decision making, about dialogue, that decisions are stronger. So Ensuring that people are involved in making the decisions that affect them and their communities is a real key element of real democracy. Again, social dialogue is a critically important component of effective decision making in modern democracies. Government needs to engage all sectors of society to develop policies that will shape the future and to ensure priorities given to well-being and the common good. We need to address the challenges of markets and their failures, and there needs to be a link between rights and responsibilities. And as Sean said, otherwise policy is likely to produce lopsided outcomes that will benefit those who have access, whilst excluding others, most notably the vulnerable. So again, we recognise the important role of the community and voluntary sector, the local roles of the public participation networks, and the challenges of community development. And again, we call for the adequate resourcing of these public participation network structures for participation at local authority level and ensure that capacity building is an integral part of the process. So I'm going to pass back then to Michelle for the next piece. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. And next we're moving on to the issue of sustainability, which as Colette pointed out earlier on is one of our, our, our key challenges. And we have not met our 2020 emissions targets. We're certainly on track to overshoot our 2030 targets and we're still headed in the wrong direction to meet our own national climate targets that we've set ourselves for 2050. And uh, Social Justice Ireland's core policy objective here is that all development is socially, economically and environmentally sustainable. And that's built into our well-being framework for a new social contract. Now, despite the impact of COVID and the, the slight drop we had in emissions, particularly in terms of transport as a result of the, you know, the restrictions during the lockdowns, our greenhouse gas emissions have actually continued to rise again. And they're increasing again in line with the reopening of the economy and society and in line with economic and employment growth. And they have returned to pre-COVID levels. And we've never managed to decouple our, our emissions from that issue of economic growth um, and our emissions again they're dominated we know that they're dominated by agriculture transport and energy uh, those are the the key three areas that we really will need to focus on in terms of meeting the targets set out in the carbon budgets 
which you've legislated for and the, the, you know, our ambitions in terms of the climate action plan. And we need to key here, and this is actually built into our, our, our social contract and the well-being framework for a social contract, is coherence between policies. So that policy is socially, economically and environmentally sustainable. That we need to look at our, our lack of policy coherence that we have in different policies. So, you know, there isn't policy coherence when we're pursuing in one department an, a policy of agricultural expansion and growth and also pursuing economic expansion, but also setting commitments in our climate action plan and in our, our carbon budgets. And we've committed to the global goals, the goals for sustainable development in terms of protecting our environment, in terms of implementing climate action, in terms of reducing emissions. So we need policy coherence in all sectors to ensure that what we're doing in one part of government and um, one part of the policy system is not having a negative impact on what we're doing in another part of government and another part of the policy system. And I suppose one thing that I'd really like to, to emphasize here is that transition and change, both environmental transition, but all the social and economic transitions that will come with that will come at a significant cost. So we have to begin to plan for this now because it, it is going to cost us significant amounts. But if we plan for it now and we prepare for it, any initial investment and input, we will reap dividends on this in the long term. But if we don't plan for this cost and if we don't put this investment in now, the challenge will be insurmountable, insurmountable and the costs, the negative costs for not planning will, will be significant. So, so what do we need to do? How, how do we make our, our transition just both socially, economically and environmentally? And how, we, how do we ensure that those who will be most impacted are protected? So I suppose, first of all here, and Sean mentioned it earlier, and Colette also mentioned in terms of social dialogue, we need a social dialogue at national level, but there's a commitment in the Climate Action Plan to a, a, a just transition dialogue. But we think that this should be brought down, not just discussed at a national level within the social dialogue structure, but you need a, a just transition dialogue at a regional level as well and at a local level so you can build support within communities for the change that is to come. And you can do mapping within community in terms of their strengths, their assets and their weaknesses and the different types of supports and services that will be required within those communities as we transition to a different type of economy and society. We need to fully resource our circular economy strategy. We welcome the announcement a couple of weeks ago, the, the legislation for this and the, the um, the legislation to bring in, for example, the, the coffee cup levy, which we've long advocated for. So we need to resource those strategies. We need to embed them within, within our, our budgetary system as well. Another area that we, we've consistently advocated for is to remove fossil fuel subsidies and environmentally harmful tax expenditures. These don't align with our national climate goals. And by removing these subsidies and actually using the resources available to invest in the services in and infrastructure communities need across the country so to support a just transition, we can we can make our transition successful. We can support those who are going to be most impacted, and we can also develop a progressive and equitable environmental taxation system. And now I'm going to move on next. And an area that's that's integrated to sustainability is the whole area of rural development. And as Colette said, both 
um, addressing rural decline, but also in ensuring that we've sustainable, viable and vibrant communities in all parts of rural Ireland. So I suppose some of the key challenges we face here are that rural areas, they generally have an, an older population, they have higher rates of part-time employment and lower median incomes than the national average. And general, generally in terms of poverty rates, there's been a trend over time that we've seen some welcome change in over the past years, but the trend has generally been that rural areas tend to have higher poverty and deprivation rates. And when you dig down into that, depending on what region you're in, the, 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 those rates can be higher again. And then another issue obviously here is the, the average distance to most everyday services for people in rural areas is at least three times longer than that for people in urban areas, which has impacts in terms of um, our climate goals also and how we support people in areas to access uh, the services that, that they require. And finally, then uh, one of the, another key challenge, which, you know, slowly we're seeing changes is the lack of quality broadband. I suppose one thing COVID and the remote working has shown is that is that there has been, I suppose, a resurgence in rural communities because people can work remotely and they, they can bring their employment with them. But if you're going to support people to continue to work remotely and, and to live a sustainable life in a rural community, then you're going to need the quality broadband, not only to support the remote working, but the remote working hubs and all the other services and infrastructures required to support, to support that change and to embed that change into rural economies. So what are, what are the policy solutions available to us, you know, to develop vibrant rural communities, to ensure that our rural future, the, the, the rural development policy that we welcomed, because it does, it, it integrates well-being and social, economic and environmental well-being into rural development policy. How do we ensure that that's a success? So we need balance, balanced investment between the regions. We need to look at integrated, accessible and flexible rural transport linking up the local networks, linking up to the regional networks and the national networks. And look at, our, as we transition and, you know, the, the cost of carbon will be higher for rural dwellers because, you know, if you don't have access to public transport, you do have to get into your car. How do we make alternatives accessible, affordable and available to rural dwellers? In terms of agriculture, how do we embed sustainable land management, short supply chains for farmers and consumers into our agricultural policy. This is one of the key areas we're going to have to embed into agricultural policy if agriculture is going to meet the targets set out in the carbon budget, but also if, if we're going to address the issues such as prices for farmers, which have been a challenge for a considerable period of time. And then we need to prepare also not just for the climate transition, but the digital transition by investing in the regions and in social infrastructural and human capital support. So it's what are the supports, both social, physical, economic and, and human capital that we need to support communities, to support workers, to support rural dwellers, to prepare themselves for the digital transition and the climate transition. And this will ensure that we have vibrant, sustainable rural communities in all, all areas of Ireland into the future. And I'm going to pass back over to Colette now, who's going to look at the area of overseas development assistance. Thank you very, very much. Um, so yes, as Michelle said, I'm going to look at this area. Um, so the core objective here is to ensure that Ireland plays an active and effective part in promoting sustainable development, and Michelle already spoke about the sustainable development goals, in the global south, and to ensure that all of Ireland's policies are consistent with that development. 
so we know, for example, that wars, that interstate conflicts and that climate change has resulted in, in mass movement of peoples. According to the World Economic Forum, the number of people who are forcibly displaced due to violence, conflict, human rights violations or other seriously disturbing public order was 82.4 million people. Now, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees reported that more than 1% of humanity, so that's that's one out of every 95 people in the world, was displaced in 2020, with more and more unable to actually return home. Of those 82.4 million people, 11 million are new displacements, with 9.8, almost 10 million people seeking protection within countries and 1.4 million seeking protection outside of their own country. An estimated 42% of all displaced people are children. That equates to 34.6 million children. It's well established that another pandemic is a likely future event, unfortunately. And according to modeling work based on historical data that was con conducted by the Center for Global Development, the next pandemic could come sooner and be even more serious than COVID-19. The frequency and the severity of infectious diseases transmitted from wildlife to humans um, is being increased, in, sorry, has been increasing since the early 2000s. And while the increase in the frequency has been notable, the increase in severity is extreme. From approximately two and a half thousand deaths in the period 2015 to 2019 to 15,000 deaths in the period 2030 to 2034, according to these models. And the authors of, of, of that study and those, those modelers estimate that the annual probability of a pandemic on the scale of COVID-19 uh, means that there is a 47 to 57% chance of another COVID-19 type of pandemic in the next 25 years. Now, as was the case with COVID-19, in future pandemics, the most vulnerable countries will be the ones least likely to, to mitigate the damage. So with countries in, in Asia, South America, Africa being among the most vulnerable. And that's why overseas development aid and climate, climate finance are just so important. We need to build the resilience of vulnerable countries now to better prepare them and the rest of the world for future pandemics. COVID-19 demonstrated that disease doesn't respect borders, so ensuring that the most vulnerable countries are equipped to manage the next pandemic benefits everybody. Um, we need to also to combat racism and policies um, in terms of how we distribute our aid and our support. Um, so, you know, again, when we look at the types of policies that are required, uh, Social Justice Ireland recognises and welcomes the fact that you know, we have a very good reputation in terms of our overseas development aid. However, Ireland still lacks a strategy for reaching the UN target of 0.7% of national income by 2030. And we would call on government to develop a strategy with a view to reaching this target by 2027. That allows for some wriggle room in the event of unexpected events. Notwithstanding our, our current economic difficulties and all of the things that we need to pay for into the future, we must continue to recover any lost ground in relation to our ODA commitments if developing countries are to have a chance of emerging from this and pandemic and of, of I suppose, guarding themselves against future ones. Within the chapter that we have um, 
we propose a possible pathway to reaching the UN target, which sees us reach us to, to 20, or sorry, to 27, or sorry, 2027, I beg your pardon. Um, and we need to make sure that our ODA, uh, our money that is going towards our ODA does not include our commitment to climate finance that, that should be dealt with separately and does not include um, what we are paying or what we are we are spending in relation to our response to the Ukrainian crisis, which should be ring fenced and dealt with separately and, and warehoused, as we talked about earlier on. And with that, I'm going to hand you back to Sean. Sean, you're mute. First time. And so we've come uh, full circle uh, and uh, gone through the whole publication. At, and I think the thing that jumps out most if, uh, startlingly clear is that this is a time for change. And we would argue that it's time for Ireland to be to adopt a well-being framework and to argue the case for well-being being at the core of policy development. Just to, to quote, uh, start with a quotation there from two of the best researchers on this whole issue of uh, inequality and exclusion, Wilkinson and Pickett, in one of their more recent publications, they state that the reality is that inequality causes real suffering, regardless of how we choose to label such distress. Greater inequality heightens social threat and status anxiety, evoking feelings of shame, which feed into our instincts for withdrawal, submission, and subordination. When the social pyramid gets higher and steeper and status insecurity increases, there are widespread psychological costs. Status competition and anxiety increase. People become less friendly, less altruistic, and more likely to put other, others down. I think we're seeing that at the moment, and we need to adopt an approach that deals with this and moves us in a different direction. We need to recognize, for example, that more equal societies are better societies. Even if we're talking to business, that business, I think, recognizes that deeply divided two-tier societies are inherently unstable and they're bad for business. And uh, not just for the people who are living there, but just for business as well. More equal societies are better societies. Ireland and indeed the planet now faces new and mounting crises. A situation where business as usual can mean only social and environmental catastrophe, as Michelle and others have pointed out so clearly here. I think we have an opportunity. Ireland now has an opportunity to develop and agree on a new social contract and how it should be delivered. And Social Justice Ireland believes that at the heart of this new social contract, there should be a commitment that the benefits derived from things like technological development and economic growth and societal advancement, that these should be shared, not colonized and captured uh, by a small elite. Um, a real republic will stand for social justice and for equality. And Social Justice Ireland calls on leadership from all sectors of Irish society to become part of a debate on a new social contract for a new century. This is the challenge that I think we 
face nothing less at this time. And just to, to, to give you a heads up on where we're, uh, one of the steps that we ourselves in Social Justice Ireland are taking, if you, here's a date for your diary, on, put in the 16th of November, 2022, this year. This is uh, our, we do a, our annual social policy conference. And uh, this year, in, on the 16th of November, 2022, that conference will be about well-being for all. And we are bringing together a very comprehensive range of, of speakers and expertise uh, from both within Ireland and outside Ireland to address that topic. We consider that this uh, is the challenge facing us now. Ireland does have an opportunity to build a better future for all. It also has an opportunity to keep going with business as usual uh, until we completely fall asunder or to adopt a model in which only a small elite will benefit hugely from the, the benefits that are there uh, and the positives that are there, and so many will be excluded. It is possible to build a society where everybody has a place, where everybody is respected. And that's the challenge that is set out in detail in, social, in our um, Social Justice Matters for 2022, and the pathway to doing it is spelt out as well. So I think we take it forward and we'll deal now with uh, any questions that that uh, people may have. And I'll hand you back to Michelle here. And thank you, Sean. And yes, we, we've quite a number of questions there ranging from uh, fuel allowance, the Ukrainian crisis, reducing poverty, um, employment issues, PPNs, rural decline. So I'll actually start off with one about housing. So Colette, I'll pass this over to you. And this is from John Begidi. Look, the issue of vulture funds, to what extent is there an issue around Irish housing and land moving onto the spreadsheets of large international investors and out of the hands of Irish ownership? And how is this damaging our provision in terms of adequate housing? And are there any steps that can be taken to address this issue? Okay, thank you. Uh, that's a very comprehensive question, uh, and I wouldn't expect anything else from John. So thank you very much. Um, yes, is there an issue? Absolutely. I mean, vulture funds, when they were brought in initially, uh, were described by the then minister, Michael Noonan, as being a good thing because they were basically to pick over the bad debts. And we have seen that not alone did they they take over bad debts on the mortgage side, they also have a quite a large portfolio of performing loans. Uh, they're now, or it's certainly investment funds, um, are now in the space of buying up large swathes of properties um, and tying them up in an investment vehicle uh, before leasing them back to the state as social housing. So it's having a number of, of knock-on impacts. What it's doing is, obviously, it's taking up hu um, huge amounts of properties out of the market that individual homeowners can no longer afford to, to bid for um, because they, you know, the imbalance of power is quite significant. You've got a, a single person or a couple with a mortgage and then you've got an investment vehicle with practically unlimited funding. Um, so that obviously is having a, a heating effect on house prices generally. Um, you then have funds that are buying up in the, the build to rent space. Um, and again, that's artificially maintaining rent prices because they can allow 
for their units to go unoccupied. Um, again, because of that power differential, because of the fact that they have so much money um, so that when they report back to their shareholders, they can say that the average um, rent on their units is X as opposed to needing to reduce the, the rental prices um, that would obviously bring down the average, but would would make sure that there were more homes actually available for for tenants who wanted to rent them. Um, it also then obviously has an issue or has a knock on effect on government finances, because rather than spending capital and building sustainable social housing, uh, we're spending more current uh, expenditure long term over 25, 30 years. Um, on very high cost rentals for social housing. I mean, you're, you're talking up to about 3,000 a month. Uh, at the end of that contract, we have no asset. Um, and then there's nothing stopping the, the fund from actually selling them on after that and, and taking that social housing solution out of the, the system. So yes, I think, you know, is it damaging our provision of adequate housing? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of steps that can be taken to address the issue, there are things that can be done. And I know, you know, yes, it was six years too, or seven years too late um, when we addressed the issue around the tax loopholes for REITs. Um, but, you know, there, there was also a move last year for by the minister um, to, in, increase stamp duty uh, for investment vehicles that were buying up large swathes of properties. Uh, now that was dampened somewhat by the fact that they excluded apartments because apparently apartments aren't homes um, and that they excluded um, those properties that were being bought for social housing. And the reason they did that was because um, one of the funds that is behind, that is an AHB that is behind uh, mortgage to rent, said they would pull 200 mortgage to rent properties uh, and they wouldn't go ahead with them. So that, that extends to people who are in long-term mortgage arrears um, getting that type of solution because they wouldn't pay the additional um, stamp duty on those purchases. So it was, it was weakened to a great extent. And actually the knock-on impact on that is it's actually encouraged funds to get into what's now the social housing market because they don't have to pay that additional uh, stamp duty. So we can't Thanks do, very much. We can do on the tax side there. Sorry. Thank you. Thanks very much, Colette. No, my apologies. And uh, Suzanne, one for you here now uh, in terms of uh, fuel poverty and I suppose cost of living and fuel allowance. Is the government's focus on increasing the fuel allowance sufficient to tackle fuel poverty? It depends on where you, you know, by the time you've defined fuel poverty, um, it's such a big, it's, it's a huge question. At the moment, there's 372,000 households in receipt of fuel allowance. So obviously that is impacting a huge number of low income households. However, fuel allowance doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it isn't available to every low income household. And again, when you look at the bigger picture, we're just looking at fossil fuel usage. So we're looking at gas, we're looking at electricity. The more, I suppose, the more allowances and the more subsidies you have in a way, does that increase use? I think we really need to look maybe at how we generate energy and how we consume energy. I think retrofitting houses would be a much better use of of our money over the long term. So it is, but it's that difficult thing of trying to put supports in for low income houses now. And at the same time, fund and 
put money into making these homes less reliant, I suppose, on, you know, in an ideal world, low income households, especially social housing, would be A-rated. Your, your, your bills would be minuscule. You wouldn't need a fuel allowance, I suppose, would, would ideally be where you'd see it. Um, so it is, I think it's a difficult one because you need to have, it's like the housing thing, you know, you can't, you can't pull out of HAP until you've got enough social housing. So they'll both have to sit side by side at the moment. But it doesn't, I suppose the bottom line is it doesn't, it doesn't help every low income household. And it does go back to fossil fuel usage at the end of the day. So it, we do need to look at that model, I think, in the long term. Thanks, Suzanne. And Sean, one, one for you here now, and I, I'm going to combine two together. So there's one there in terms of, I suppose this is looking at what you, actually what you said at the very end, political ambition, leadership and vision. So would some greater training in strategic thinking and long-term planning for politicians better equip them to provide greater leadership and vision? But I kind of want to combine that then with a question, you know, does that link into social dialogue and being exposed, I suppose, to different viewpoints and discussing evidence in it, I suppose, a, in a more evidence-based arena and coming to consensus? Is that, enough, you know, would, is that more important than, you know, training and strategic thinking and long-term planning? I suppose uh, for me, the, the whole idea about social dialogue is that people uh, have the opportunity of putting their own ideas on the table, uh, setting out their analysis, setting out their vision of the future, setting out uh, the pathways they think that we can uh, travel from one side to the other. But at the same time, um, social dialogue provides the opportunity and the requirement that people have to engage and sectors have to engage with the viewpoints of other sectors. Uh, so um, you know, we, we see it enough, uh, clearly enough with employers and trade unions when they're negotiating pay. There's two different points of view and they, they argue out and they come to a decision. But I think it's, it goes far beyond that when we come to dealing with the issues that we're, we've been articulating in this presentation and that are contained in such detail in Social Just, uh, Justice Matters, uh, the, the publication. Uh, so what would happen in effect is we would go in with ideas about uh, what the situation was, but the, our analysis and our vision of the future and ideas about how we could go from one to the other. But we would have to engage with the uh, alternative analysis that others might come from. Then we would just basically have to sit down and agree, if we could, on what the real evidence showed us. Uh, and I think it, well, one of the things it does, it would do very effectively, is it gets rid of the kind of uh, argument by assertion that is not based on evidence. Evidence is critically important. And um, uh, there, is, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies that are cited in social justice matters, literally hundreds of studies uh, that uh, we've gone through in Social Justice Ireland and that we were able to put up the, this particular study, that particular study, this is why we hold this position. And this is why we think this type of future is possible and this particular pathway is doable. So, uh, but others could come and say, well, there's this other evidence we might not have come across or, or we might disagree with because there's other evidence that disproves it and so on. But basically, social dialogue produces a situation in which leadership can sit down together and uh, discuss in an honest and uh, research-based way based on the evidence they can we can come to some kind of a resolution we don't have to agree on everything we can agree that 
we and accept that we okay we will do we accept to move in a in a particular direction and take certain initiatives and then we can also agree as part of that that we will come back to review progress and see whether or not our um, analysis is proving uh, viable or whether the pathways that we have outlined are really working or not and that toing and flowing uh, uh, and then sort of mutual give and take provides a situation in which i think real real leadership can be exercised and real change can be generated in a method in an approach that that works towards a consensus rather than forever uh, depending on who can shout the loudest and who has the highest decibel level uh, to win an argument. Thanks very much, Sean, for a, it was a, a comprehensive response to that. And I think it, it's really important to, to get the, the, that message out there. There's two issues here that I might just take up myself. So there's, so there's one in terms of rural decline, um, in terms of has the educational system favoured urban rather than rural needs for the past 25 years? And then in terms of sustainability and well-being, do we need a, a national food policy uh, looking at the full life cycle of food? So in terms of the second issue, absolutely, we do need to look at the full life cycle of food production, consumption, and also putting uh, the carbon costs of food as well onto food. So, for example, should you be able to go to your supermarket and buy a uh, you know, a punnet of raspberries or strawberries out of season in a plastic container for two euros. Absolutely should not because they've been flown in from another country. The, you know, the cost of producing the food, the cost of the transporting of the food should be, you know, incorporated um, into the price of food. And so that's why we do need, absolutely need a comprehensive national food policy that would incorporate, obviously, our agricultural policy, our production policy, our export and import policy as well. Then in terms of the, you know, the educational system and rural decline, I suppose it contributed to it in a way because people had to leave their, you know, their, their homes to go on to third level education, university, uh, further education. And this was the challenge was that you weren't able then to go back to the, you know, your, your town, your village, your county, because the employment opportunities uh, that you were now qualified for weren't necessarily there because I suppose traditionally those employment opportunities available in rural areas, they weren't, I suppose, the, the white collar or high qualification roles. But that is changing now. And I think I suppose the, the, the rollout of the remote working hubs, the fact that, you know, you don't now need to be in an urban environment to take advantage of an employment opportunity will benefit rural communities. And I have to say just... The, I suppose the launch of the Atlantic Technological University just a number of weeks ago was a huge step, I think, in this direction and a, a really positive step in enabling people from the Atlantic seaboard to actually stay there while they engage in their third level of education. And I think that will be in the long term, that's going to be a huge advantage to those communities, a huge advantages, advantage to, you know, delivering on the 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 targets in our rural future and you know a better quality of living and a better incomes for everybody in rural Ireland so I think we are you know taking steps to change this but we can certainly learn a lot from the lessons of the past number of years. Now um, Sean I just want to put um, because I know we're coming up against time here so just in terms of a topic that you've spoken and we've worked on for a long number of years there's a question here is can Ireland have a universal basic income? How could it be delivered and what level? So I might just put that to you, given all the work you've done on that over the past 30 years and beyond, and in light of the pilot that, you know, Minister Martin has just announced. Okay. A one-word answer, yes. 
uh, Ireland can have a universal basic income system. Hardly a surprising answer from me. Uh, yes, it can be paid for. Social Justice Ireland shows how it can be paid for. Uh, we have on our website uh, uh, the, the full texts and, and uh, the video of uh, our uh, seminar last year in which we set out how that might be approached and how it might uh, how a universal basic income uh, actually could be put into place, how it could be paid for and so on. Minister Martin's uh, initiative on the, well, on the basic income for artists is a step in that direction, in a direction which basically gives it to one sector, but we're talking about having to do um, sort of to, 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 to deal with issues um, uh, that uh, arise as a result of that initiative. The overall number that's the, that she's paying, uh, the minister is paying, or the, the government is paying artists €325 Euro, uh, a week, is not viable in terms of a universal basic income. Uh, we would argue that I suppose the, the most that could be done is a, somewhere uh, without hugely radical uh, changes would be uh, uh, something around 208, 210, that type of a week and, and build on that then uh, that people could be free to do whatever they like beyond that. Um, but of course, in that, we're also saying you maintain the universal basic services. You don't, uh, you, you work for those as well. You don't sort of give up the provision of services if you provide a basic income. And we also would maintain quite strongly that you have to keep the special payments for people with disabilities, for people who are ill, for people in, in different situations that are getting a separate payment. Uh, these should be maintained into the future as well. But yes, I think uh, where, where I'm concerned, uh, universal basic income is uh, the most effective met methodology of dealing with what in effect is the uh, ultimate challenge of the 21st century where the world of work has changed fundamentally. The way we distribute income is fundamentally different to what we did before. We need to find a methodology for distributing income that is appropriate to the 21st century. Universal basic income is such a methodology. Thanks very much, Sean. And look, I know um, I can see some people are, are leaving there now because we had said we would finish uh, at 12.30. And I just really want to thank everybody for your time this morning. Uh, Social Justice Matters is available on our website. I mean, it goes into comprehensive detail on, you know, the issues we've spoken about this morning. And I suppose I just want to reiterate again, our conference on the 16th of November is going to pick up on all of these issues. I mean, the, the, the concept of well-being is not going to go away. I think it's actually just going to grow in in stature and how we improve the well-being of everybody and also how we integrate, you know, those fleeing war, how we provide services and infrastructure to everyone in society that's accessible to everyone, how we, you know, redesign, reorganize our social protection systems, as you said, Sean, so it's fit to face the challenges that we will face now and into the future. All of these topics are, are, are going to remain on the agenda and that, you know, they're all going to be part of our conference on the 16th of November. So just want to flag that to people so you can put it in your diary. And once again, to thank you all for being here this morning, for your support. We really appreciate it. Just thank Sean, Colette and Suzanne for all of the work they put into this morning and all the behind the scenes work and all the work that went into Social Justice Matters 2022 as well. And we're just so happy that so many of you could join us this morning for the webinar and to stay with us throughout the morning as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you want to know more, you can find our Socioeconomic Review 2022 on our website, www.socialjustice.ie. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, any conversations you'd like us to have,
please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions.